but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We are a stone's throw away from the United States Open. You are about to depart for New York City very soon. Very soon. Man, packing and laundering before going on a, a long trip, I'd forgotten how much of a task it is. So terrible. But before the US Open, as we all know, there is the Western and Southern Open, in Mason, Ohio, which just concluded yesterday, and we got, suffice to say, a pair of surprising winners. Yeah, finally the men's tour is turning out shocking winners, right? Not the usual suspects, although Tsitsipas reached the final. Tsitsipas, for his part, you think of his season in total, and you're kind of left, at best, just feeling whelmed. But he's number two in the race. Right. It's that consistency. You know, he he did win a Masters title at Monte Carlo. He won it again. But it's really just about the consistency this year. And he's getting a lot of flack for not taking that next step in majors especially. But uh, we'll get to it later, of course. But I think there's been some professionalization mm. going on. I see improvements. I saw that written on the agenda. And you were skeptical? I have nothing to add on that. <laughs> it's... Too close, too early to call. True, true. Today's episode is going to work like this. We're going to talk about Cincinnati, the ball controversy, the surprising winners, and then we have an interview for you with Tom Humberstone, who is the author and illustrator of the new book, Suzanne, which is a comic, a graphic novel about the great Suzanne Longland. Tom, as you all may know by now has been a longtime collaborator with us. Any of the BodyServe images that you see circulating around the internet, on Redbubble, on our merchandise, those have been designed by Tom. Tom's book comes out September 7th. He advises, call your local bookstore, call your public library, and request that they carry the book because it helps a lot in sales. Which is to say, avoid purchasing on Amazon if you can. <laughs> If you can. Or other large online book retailers. Yes, but uh, we can say from experience, the book is very beautifully rendered. It's visually striking. It matches the opulence and the vivacity of Suzanne's playing and her life. It also fills a void in the, in the tennis literature, because not much has been written or produced about the life of this singular figure in tennis. Yes. So later on, Tom will tell us a little bit more about the book and about Suzanne's life and the gap that he identified in the tennis marketplace. Caroline Garcia and Borna Chorich. Garcia, not that shocking, to be honest. She had been playing really well for a long time. But Borna? Borna, he's one of the OG next gens. He was one of the early bloomers. He's still only, uh, what, 25 years old? Mm -hmm. And he's in that generation with Medvedev, Zverev. Tsitsipas is a little bit younger. But they all came up together, and it's been so long 
since you've heard Chorich mentioned in the same breath as those players? If you go back and look at his past results and you come across pictures of Borna when he was 17, 18 years old, looks like a total baby. Mm-hmm. Like this was a literal child <laughs> that had all this promise. And now seven years later, after numerous injuries, after having shoulder surgery last year, he has come back in a big way out of the blue. And when I say big way, I also mean this new and improved boom, boom, blasting serve that he's got. Yeah. He gets shoulder surgery in May 2021 in New York City by this prominent surgeon. He didn't play for a full 12 months doing rehab, physiotherapy, and he started back in March. He won a challenger in June in Italy. And all of a sudden in Cincinnati, he has a like a second coming out party. It's like we meet Borna again and we meet his new serve. And it seems that not only did they fix the shoulder, they like gave him a better one, <laughs> right? This is stuff he couldn't do before. He's serving in the high 120s. He had 16 aces in the match against RBA, I believe. And so this is a big part of his game now, this big serve and incredible backhand. He'd been progressing year to year, making two finals in 2016, winning a title in 2017 on clay, 2018 winning Halle in Germany on grass. In 2020, he made the quarterfinals of a slam for the very first time at the US Open. And then the injury happened. And so now he's back with the biggest win of his career, his first Masters 1000 title. And if his win over Rafa Nadal on Wednesday felt like a massive upset, if it left a bad taste in your mouth as a Rafa fan, then what he went on to do the rest of the week should should make you feel a little bit better about it. Because Rafa was the only person all week to win a set off of Borna. Yeah. So he started against Musetti, then beat Rafa, Roberto Bautista Agut, Felix, just sort of stormed through Felix, Cam Nori, and finally Tsitsipas in the final. And... Jim Courier was going on and on about Tsitsipas' return position, how he's much more successful on clay when he stands back. And so he was saying, stand further back on returning the serve. Stefanos's return is, you know, is a weak spot in his game, and it's something that he's consciously working on. But I see a lot of improvement overall. And I'll tell you, watching Stefanos play Medvedev, who's been kind of a nemesis for him, and a bugaboo, right? He doesn't have a great record against him. You didn't see the theatrics that we sometimes see with Stefanos. And I don't know if that's a Mark Philippoussis' influence, but you just saw a lot less muttering to his box. Uh, it seemed less tortured. There wasn't a lot of drama around that match. And I came off uh, impressed. Well, you were easily impressed then, because this was... <laughs> Well, it's, you, you have to acknowledge when there is improvement. Okay, let's let's see how he gets through the U.S. Open and into the fall before we declare that Tsitsipas is head down. Maybe not even drama-free, but drama-lesser. Right, right. And I almost regretted, because uh, I wrote it down, I almost regretted writing it when I saw him in the final, because he still likes to do these little annoying things, right? He 
likes to hit straight at players when they're at the net, which is fine, which I have a long, long record on this podcast of defending, but sometimes it's not the best tactic. You know, Stefanos will sometimes do it and the ball will go far along and the player can easily dodge it. So sometimes you just shouldn't do it. I feel like what's going on here, if I know you, is that you are grasping for reason to stand Stefanos. No, no, I don't think so. I think... Because you've long I'm trying, said... I'm trying to enjoy men's tennis, right? So I'm not going to stand Stefanos, but I will admit that I enjoyed watching a semi against Medvedev, and I enjoyed watching the final. And I was rooting for Borna, but still. You've said on this show many times in the past that you enjoy watching Stefanos and mm-hmm. that this is somebody whose game you could enjoy watching for years to come. And if we eliminate the stuff that's problematic about Stefanos and being a fan of him and being able to watch his game guilt-free, then that becomes a much more joy- enjoyable experience for you. Right. Which is what I'm thinking is right. going on here. So, like, cut out the stuff. There are clearly players that get on his nerves. Nick, of course. I mean, he gets on everyone's nerves. So cut out that stuff and try to have a little fun. Mm. Okay. But, but back to Borna. Uh, that first set tiebreak, bageled. Mm. That was bad. That took a lot of life out of the match for Stefanos. You say professionalism. What I saw were a bunch of points where Stefanos did not move to balls where he should have. Yes. That was kind of alarming at important points of the match too, which leads me to think that maybe Stefanos was physically compromised in that match. Because otherwise, what is the reason for that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there was, if he wasn't physically compromised, there was kind of a lack of brain power going on, especially in the tiebreak. Borna came into this tournament ranked, what, 150 something? You have here written down number 152. He beats four seeds. You listed them previously. And now he's back inside the top 30. A win like this just reignites a career for somebody like George. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of having to play challengers upon challenger, worrying about your special exemptions running out, worrying about wild cards. Now, none of those things are an issue. Not one. And for the rest of the year, up until March, any points he gains are just add-ons. He's not defending any points, so his ranking is most likely going to go up and into seeding territory at some point. He missed, you know, missed the cutoff for the U.S. Open, but for the next one, who knows? He now owns a winning career record against Nadal at 3-2. and Yeah, I feel like it's been so long since I've seen Borna that I couldn't believe that they were 2-2. and Um... And then, of course, I recalled that dramatic, awful U.S. Open match between Stefanos and Borna in 2020 in front of no crowd and how contentious it was. This wasn't a friendly final. But do you also recall that we were present for one of those losses to George by Nadal in no. Cincinnati? No. Fourth round? <laughs> I, have... I believe it was like 2017 or something like that. Oh, I have. 2016, 2017 have no memory of that. Mm. Ultimately, I see this as being nothing but an exceptional development for the men's game. A week where we did not have to think or consider seriously Nick Kyrgios going deep into a tournament. We didn't have to think about Zverev. Uh, We didn't have to think about this vaccine never-ending drama. We didn't get the players that we expected 
at the end on both the men's and women's side. But I think this Cincinnati tournament proved that it's not all about one or two stars, right? If they're out, people are still going to watch. Now, I don't know what the TV ratings are, but people in the stand, like butts will be in seats regardless. I mean, Those we, tickets are going to sell. We saw the turnout for the final in Montreal. Mm-hmm. We saw the turnout in Cincinnati. People still showed up. Question for you. What did you think about Rafa's performance? And what did you take away with respect to his chances in New York? Uh, I'm still a bit nervous. I think he is unsure about the body. He said he was kind of testing it. And when scar tissue develops in a muscle, there can be pain or there can be tightness. And you're trying to sort of figure out whether it's an injury or whether it's healing or healed. You know, like you have to sort of test the waters. He practiced a lot. He stayed in Cincinnati after the loss. Now he's in New York practicing. Still practicing yeah. twice a day. And I I didn't think he looked bad. He, he looked very rusty, right? He was making errors that he normally wouldn't have. I guess the serve is what I'm nervous about. Because if the ab is still an issue, then he can't serve. Well, if Rafa's playing, I assume he's healthy enough to serve. And if that's I mean, the case... we have seen him play very unhealthy lately. Right. But with this specific injury, I don't think he has any delusions of getting through seven best of five matches at the US Open with this injury still being a problem. Right. Expecting it to get worse as he progresses through the rounds. That That's a nonsensical way to go about this right now. Mm-hmm. So if he does show up, what's going to be key for him is the ground, the ground game. Because... If the serve is, uh, even if it's it's middling, the, he can f- have a lot of that forgiven by having rhythm and good ground strokes. And that's where the rust was most evident in Cincinnati, I felt. Mm. Not uh, middling a lot of balls, a lot of short balls. Yeah. And I don't know that he was entirely prepared for what Borna was bringing. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Of course, he knows the type of game that Borna plays, but did he know he was in that kind of form? Or to be receiving serves like that. Right. Now, on the women's side, again, some of our top seeds went out fairly early. Iga Shantek loses to Madison. Anshabur was out early. Serena Williams was out early. Of course, right? And so... Venus have... Williams was out early. A lot of the headliners are gone by the quarterfinals, and... In their place, you get someone like Madison Keys, who's won this tournament before, who is going to delight the crowd. She is a Midwest girl, even though she's from out in Illinois, like in the Quad Cities area. She loves this tournament. They absolutely love her here. There's Jesse Pagula reaching another quarterfinal. Arena Sabalenka kind of getting her groove back. There was a lot to enjoy. And that's not even mentioning what Petra and Caroline were doing. This sounds like propaganda for the WTA, but a more of it is like I was so disappointed at the beginning of the tournament because some of my phase were gone. And then I sort of just gave myself over to it and enjoyed what was happening. Garcia won eight matches, beating countrywoman Parry in the first round of qualifying. Andrea Petkovic in three sets before making the main draw, taking out Petra Martic in the first round. Then in three sets, Maria Sakari. Elisa Mertens in the fourth round. Number three in the race, Jesse Pagula in the quarterfinals. Sabalenka in the semis. And then Petra Kvitova making her first Cincinnati final 
what I loved about this run is that we got a reminder of the prodigious talent that this woman has. Everybody likes to go back to that tweet from Andy Murray back in what, like 2014, saying, oh, that girl who played so-and-so. Sharon Pulver. Yeah, she's going to be number one one day. <laughs> yeah. And, and she got to number four. She did. She won two big tournaments back-to-back in China that year. I think it was like 2017. Both, well, now they would both be seen as 1,000 tournaments, which is another thing we can talk about on another show. <laughs> Confusing about the retroactive application of WTA 1,000s. Anyway, Carolyn is, I tweeted this, she is a generational talent. That doesn't mean that she has capitalized on all of that talent, but she is one of the most gifted players of her generation, no doubt. And now to see her get some confidence, and it seems to have sprung from the doubles title at Roland Garros with former frenemy and cyberbully Kristina Mladenovic, (laughs) maybe that reunion made her, I don't know, gave her some fire, like gave her some closure. And I know they had played together a few times before that, but that doubles title seemed to create all of this momentum for her in singles, winning a title on grass in Bad Homburg, winning a title on clay in Warsaw, and now here. We talked about how Borna has three career titles on three different surfaces. Caroline has three titles this year on three different surfaces. Right, in the past two months. So this is the kind of momentum that you never want to stop, right? And she's even going to Cleveland to continue playing. I mean, I guess we'll see if she if she continues to play through this tournament. But I was shocked that she was going there. But it's it's not that far. It's like a four hour drive, maybe a quick plane ride in the same state. And maybe it's like, I've got this momentum right now. I don't want to lose it because it's so ephemeral in tennis. She spoke about how a lot of this current success is owing to the fact that she's trusting her attacking game. Mm-hmm. That when she first came on tour, she played attacking tennis and it got her that immediate success. But then after a while, doubts creep in. And then depending on who is in your team, who you're listening to, people then want you to play a mix of defense and offense. Or play more defensively against this person because that would work better in this particular matchup. And she said it was, a, in effect, a, an erosion of confidence over time. Trying to find the perfect blend of offensive and defensive tennis. And she said that, you know, while it's all well and good to, to go and play aggressively, it takes a lot of self-belief. Mm-hmm. And that's something that she has worked really hard on to get that part of her game and instinct and trust back. If you want to read about that, check out her interview with, I believe it was an article with Courtney Nguyen for WTA Insider. She hit 11 aces in the final. She was pretty impregnable on serve, which is not something that you always associate with Garcia. Petra had eight chances to break and did not break. Petra, unfortunately, was hampered by an injury Uh, in the second set, and it seems that she may have hyperextended her knee a little bit. So hopefully that's not a serious thing. She was clearly not her best in the second set. But big up to Petra for getting here. This year has been very weird. Almost losing in the first round. She played for three hours against Teichmann 
in conditions that traditionally she does not enjoy in the U.S. hardcore swing in the summer. She won Eastbourne this year, but otherwise, it, she's had trouble stringing match wins back to back. And she hasn't had a big tournament win in a long time. Right. In, a, in years at this point. And so making the Cincinnati final, something she'd never done before, in conditions that don't favor her at all. We know how she feels about the humidity. <laughs> <laughs> Super weak for her. Yeah. She beat Al Shabur. She beat Madison Keys, who was surging. And the win over Madison clearly meant a ton to Petra. She was emotional after after the last point, meaning that she would get into the final. And it's been a long time since she's been in a 1,000 final. She also did the wonderful service of beating Kirstea in the second round. <laughs> but that match against Madison Keys, that was high-quality, high-octane, boom-boom tennis at its best. Yep. Neither yep. woman really blinked. I mean, Madison had those triple-break points at the end of the third set, which, unfortunately, she won none of them. Mm-hmm. But that was mostly due to Petra's play. Let's talk about this tennis ball controversy in the U.S. Open Series swing. Iga Svantec talked extensively about the U.S. Open Series balls in one of her press conferences. Really unhappy with them. Last year, Ash Barty's coach Craig Tizer complained about the balls and said he didn't see Ash ever winning the U.S. Open with these balls. I mean, at that time, he also knew that Ash didn't <laughs> didn't plan on playing much longer. Yes, but it was a curious statement, right? To, to say mm-hmm. at the time that somebody of Ash Barty's ability across all surfaces just would never win the U.S. Open solely because of the balls. Right. I wondered if he was being too hyperbolic. Right. But now here comes Ego saying that and more, <laughs> essentially. Uh, some background on what's going on here is that the U.S. Open uses Wilson U.S. Open regular duty balls for women. And they use... Wilson U.S. Open XD, which means extra duty for men. And the idea behind it, allegedly, was that they started using the regular duty balls for the women to reduce injuries to the arm, elbow, and wrist. They The balls fluff up less, they fly through the air more easily, and therefore it takes less racket head speed to get a lot of power on the shots. I watched a YouTube video by Gil Gross that was really helpful, that explained the ball controversy very clearly, and he suggested that although the Raducanu Fernandez final was a shocker and didn't make a whole lot of sense, maybe it makes a little more sense in the context of these regular duty balls. And we saw this with Emma this week, that all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, Emma was playing with power. She doesn't always generate a lot of power on her own, but is it possible that these regular duty balls basically just help her get the ball through the air faster? It's no accident that players who rely on heavy spins and play a brand of tennis like Iga does would find these balls objectionable as opposed to the more powerful flat-hitting players like, say, a Madison Keys who loves them. (laughs) Or a Petra. Right. Or Williams. Players. Venus specifically. Right. But players like Barty and Sviantek, who use a lot of topspin, 
Iga said that she had a lot of trouble controlling the ball when she uses spin, which is an issue. And the other thing is that the balls are not really available for players to practice with overseas. They're not widely available in Europe, so she doesn't really have... I'm sure she could get them shipped, right? But that's not really the issue, because not every player on the WTA can access these balls to practice. I mean, it brings up an interesting kind of governance issue, right? Like, tournaments, of course, can decide the types of balls they use, but what kind of say does the WTA have? What kind of say does the player council have? And is there is there a consensus on this? Right? Clearly not. Madison likes them. Emma plays well with them, clearly. Petra would probably say, sure, these balls are great. Uh, you know, what percentage of the WTA doesn't like them? Well, Iga gave the impression that it was a large percentage mm-hmm. based on that press conference. But then you start to get the pushback from other players saying <laughs> the complete opposite. Right. And the point is, right now, we don't know. Now, if let's say they took a survey and 90% of players said, we hate these, what would be the next step? Does the player council have that kind of influence? And I think it also brings up the larger brewing issue in tennis that feels like it's intensifying is this war between the tours and the Grand Slams. John Wertheim talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. The Grand Slams have a, a huge amount of power and the ATP and the WTA are always trying to leverage what power they have because the tours need to survive, right? People need to be excited about tour level tournaments or there is no tour. And so I think you're seeing a Grand Slam flexing and saying these are the balls we're going to use. When they expanded these balls to the run-up tournaments a few years ago, it was like the tour saying, okay, fine, we'll, we'll make it more fair on our players, but we're only doing this because these are the balls you want. So this is just something to keep an eye on as we head into yeah. the U.S. Open. I'm surprised how interesting I found this. It'll be interesting to, to see the types of players who do well compared to if they did well in previous seasons and if there are any patterns there and if there are any correlations that can be drawn to the use of these balls. I mentioned earlier that Serena went out early in this tournament at Cincinnati. She lost to Emma Raducanu, 6-4-6 love. Raducanu then in her very next set in the second round against Vika Azarenka bageled her as well. So she is now able to say that she bageled Serena and Vika in back-to-back matches in back-to-back sets. That's yeah, that's she, something. She sure can say that. <laughs> what does it mean in context? I don't know. Injury rumors swirling around Serena. There was that whole hullabaloo, if you recall, leading into the tournament. Cincinnati organizers announced that Serena was going to be definitely playing Monday night. And then, Sunday, all this rain. And then we get word, and then we get word that Serena is now playing Tuesday night. And it's unclear whether... It was a rescheduling because of all the matches that had to be rescheduled for Monday, and that then pushed Serena back to Tuesday, or if this was some kind of injury situation. We still don't know. Some people know. <laughs> and those people are tweeting, for some reason, Serena's match was pushed to Tuesday. They know why. And Serena was injured in that match. Okay. The You know, this these microaggressions will never end. Like... When she retires, we'll be sort of free of it. 
But the... This is what I was saying mm-hmm. on the last episode. Yeah. The insinuations about Zarita are endless. The British press is really good at this. The constant monitoring of who's come to press and who hasn't. I guarantee you, like to quote the great Roger Federer, nobody cares. Nobody cares. When a journalist tweets a, a complainy, petty tweet about Serena didn't come to press, the, look at the replies. I Please look at the replies. Who is replying? Or even feigning objectivity to just saying, I'm just reporting that this is what has happened, or in this case, hasn't happened. I'm <laughs> right. not being editorial. I'm not saying Serena should be in press, but the mere mention of it allegedly, matter-of-factly, incites the trolldom. Yeah, so look at the replies of these tweets. It's all Karens, a lot of Karens, a lot of trolls, a lot of racists. It incites a lot of ugliness. And This is why Beyonce says she needs her derringers. (laughs) Because these Karens have turned into terrorists. Mm. Uh, The thing is, like, these people do not care about about press conferences, right? They're not single-issue voters on press conferences. Nobody gives a fuck. They have seen an opportunity to scream and cry about Serena. Nobody cares. And so when, you know, when they write the biographies, when they make another movie, when history is written, like, nobody is going to care who went to a press conference in Mason in 2022. In the midst in the throes of her, of her farewell. Like, so you uh, you can't write a story without a quote from Serena? That's that's on you, boo. Let's, let's not even start. We went through the whole Naomi thing last May, and we got some very childish responses from reporters about her refusal to do press, and we're still going through it. We have learned nothing. At this point, and I've seen some people say it on Twitter as well, But I just kind of want Venus and Serena to play in the first round of the U.S. Open. Like, I don't... I do. I do. Like, the idea that we may never get to see them play again is one of the harder parts of this whole retirement thing. Mm -hmm. To see them play each other. Because we've never fully appreciated what that was, what it meant, how difficult it was. And collectively... As a tennis viewing public, it is the part of their story that I feel is most underappreciated or just not able to be understood. And so at the end of their careers now, one final time. And why I say the first round, because I don't want anybody else to beat Serena other than Venus. Do I want Serena's last match to to be against Raducanu? No. Do I want right. it to be against even Vika? Like, who, who is fitting of this moment but Venus? That presupposes, on my end, that Serena's not winning this tournament. <laughs> well, and also you're saying that Venus will beat Serena. Uh, I'm, if Serena's injured, for the first set that Venus played against Pliskova, it it's likely. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I get what you're saying. It's just, it's too much. Uh, I don't know. It is too much. I, it you is know, too much I, to think about and to wrap our heads around. Yeah. And I, so I want something that's least angst-ridden for me. And that would provide some comfort, at least. Okay. 
that it's not a passing the torch moment, but we can't avoid these things. This is just up to the luck of the draw, right? Zena Garrison sent out Chrissy Everett in the last U.S. Open match of her career, and we love Zena. Right, but do we want a Benjamin Becker type situation? Absolutely not. No, we don't. But this is sport, right? Sometimes it's going to end in a not very exciting way or a not very poetic way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've just resigned myself to witness, watch and witness. I just hope that she's able to be healthy enough to compete in this match. Because how tragic that after all the work that she's done to push herself one more time, that this could be undercut by something totally out of her control. Uh, speaking of Vika, she made the <laughs> she tweeted on Sunday, announcement coming tomorrow. And of course, the the two top two things that people think it is is retirement or I'm having a baby. Oh, there's more. There's retirement, there's baby, there's changing citizenship. Oh, yes, that was the other thing. And then the other thing was season two of her podcast. The citizenship thing, I thought that was a really good guess because she's lived in the United States for a very long time. Marta Kostiuk just gave these quotes about how she was uncomfortable with Belarusian and Russian players uh, playing in this... This Tennis Plays for Peace event on Wednesday night on Louis Armstrong Stadium. Right. So Vika is scheduled to appear she's belarusian was this a a moment where she said well i'm american now no that's not it it's season two of her podcast let me tell you you know what if you can leverage publicity for your own product go ahead do it because that's what this was (laughs) like she she rode the waves of retirement fervor in tennis this year where we've seen numerous players retire and coming at a time when Vika herself has had super indifferent results and bizarre things happening on court, storming off, crying. Mm -hmm. Like, it was a totally reasonable leap for some to make. And she knew this. Vika was not blind or deaf to what was going to be happening when she made that tweet. But she also knew she had her podcast to promote. (laughs) And so she did it. I really admire it, to be honest. And she said, all of your sweet messages about me, I've really enjoyed reading. So maybe she just needed a boost. All right. That brings us to the end of the tennis portion of the episode. Please stay tuned for our interview with Tom Humberstone, who has written and illustrated a graphic novel, a comic about Suzanne Longland. And we are excited to be part of this promo rollout. You can hear about the project in Tom's own words. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Tom from a couple weeks ago. Tom Humberstone, welcome to the Body Serve. I feel like this has been a long, long time in the making. Hi, yeah, no, it's really lovely to meet you both. Well, uh, hey, you both. (laughs) (laughs) There's a very specific and special reason why you're here. And that's because you have, you, by the time this airs, you will have published a brand new tennis graphic novel. Did I get that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, it feels like, I think both of you have been sort of, uh, you've both been um, a part of a journey in a way, because I, I, I sent you an early version of the script, so you've seen it in its various forms along the way a little bit. 
Now, was this uh, kind of a pandemic project for you or was it something you'd conceived of before? Yeah, uh, so it was about, I think it's about five years ago maybe that I first started thinking about this. And then I put together a pitch document and started working on some like very early test pages, uh, some test art and developing the story, doing a lot of research, reading a lot of books. And eventually I got to a place where I thought, I think this is a thing. I think I can, I think I can see a, like a full sort of 200 page graphic novel in this. I approached Creative Scotland, which is a sort of arts funding organization here in Scotland and was able to secure some funding for it. I've been drawing it for the past two years. So yeah, basically as soon as the funding came through and I, I managed to get an in publisher interested in it, I, that was essentially when the pandemic happened. Yeah, like my pandemic has been sitting in a box room in our flat drawing this comic every day. So it would have been a Groundhog Day sort of existence um, beforehand. <laughs> right, but uh, you had something to do at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a project. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we've buried the lead a little bit here in that we still haven't mentioned the topic of this graphic novel. Right. Do, yeah. do you want to tell us who the subject is? Sorry, yeah, yeah. So it's a graphic novel about Suzanne Longlong. It's about the 1920s. It's about tennis back in the uh, pre-open era. It's sort of following what happens to tennis when it goes from Victorian pastime into something that we might recognize now as the game. Why Suzanne? So I don't know about you both. When uh, I only knew her as... I knew her as the court name. I knew her uh, that there was a statue of her, Roland Garros. Uh, it was, um, I, I, I think I knew that she, she was a legendary tennis player, but I, I, don't, I don't think I knew much more than that. Um, and I was reading uh, Love Game by Elizabeth Wilson. It's a historical book about tennis, you know, from its very early origins to the present day. And I couldn't, believe some of the things that I was reading about her and, and her story sounded remarkable. So I sort of went down a wiki rabbit hole for a while. And the more I read about her, the more, the more I wanted to read about her. And I realized there was very little in the way of books specifically about her. She pops up in a lot of chapters in a lot of tennis history books. But there's the goddess in the American girl. And there's Alan Little's got a book about her, like, um, <laughs> no shade to it, but it's, it's quite dry. Uh, half the <laughs> book is just dates and of the, the various matches and, and the score lines. So I was really surprised that there wasn't that much about her. I mean, Goddess in the American Girl was out of print, you know, like, it's relatively easy to get copies of it, but I was really surprised that there wasn't that much. You said that the, the existing literature was a bit dry. Mm. which seems like such a great disservice to her because yeah. while I do know some about Suzanne, one of the first things that I, I learned about her that I can recall is this iconic silhouette on a tennis court, the fashions. Mm. And reading your book and looking at all the great designs and how you brought everything to life, the word that came to my mind the entire time was a vibrant. There's a, a vibrancy about Suzanne about your novel, about the era that 
it just seems was lost to tennis history, lost to history period, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like this is one of the, the important gaps that will be filled by this work. Oh, thank you. I, um, I think that was definitely a real hope for me. Uh, I think whenever you start a project, right, you have to sort of ask yourself, right, is there a reason that it needs to be a graphic novel as opposed to prose? Um, would it, this work better as, you know, a, a TV pitch or a film or, you know, like you have to, obviously like part of me, you know, I'm a, I'm a comic artist and that's how I think. I think in terms of how things work as comics. So I'm automatically going to start down that road but I really did feel like there were so many aspects of her life that there was a version of her story that I wanted to read that wasn't in a sort of quite dry prose book not that prose can't capture vibrancy in life Um, but uh, I really wanted to see it in colour I wanted to see the movement there was also a part of me that really wanted to draw a comic about tennis and try and convey my love for it I think a part of me wanted to also convince comic readers that it's an amazing sport and they, they should be interested in it. So that was also part of it. But yeah, I think I think when you sort of read all of these stories about her and, well, first you've got the, the balletic movement on court, but you've also got the sassiness, the arguing, the umpires, the, you know, the, uh, the drinking, the dancing, the sort of... Moods. Jazzy. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's... I don't know, I really wanted to see it. And I, I wanted to also not feel completely tied down by things that I could support by three different primary texts and, and, and that sort of thing, particularly when a lot of the people you need to be able to speak to at this point are sadly passed. So this is definitely like, it's not a non-fiction book, it's a historical fiction. I invent a lot of the scenes, I, I, I write the dialogue. But I, I'm, I was hoping that, it sort of captures Suzanne, or at least a version of Suzanne, the one I have in my head, in a quite an, an impressionistic way, at least, and, and hopefully sort of doesn't do a disservice. You know, when you start to conceive of a project like this, how do you go about deciding, you know, whether to tell this full sort of biopic treatment or select a few key moments from this person's life? Is constructing a narrative like this very agonizing for you or did it did it sort of come together as you were working on it i'm guessing also you may have been freed a little bit by the fact that everybody's dead right (laughs) right yeah yeah is there is is there anybody alive who would have known her at this point yeah i was trying to think about that i i don't think so i mean we're talking people in the 20s as well like it's um yeah they'd have to be like over 100 right Um, yeah Ted would, have, Ted would be over 100 now, right? Or close yeah. to it. Yeah, 110. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that, that does free you up. It also makes it incredibly hard, particularly when there aren't that many books about her at all. And so researching her was difficult, but obviously, like, a lot of fun. I was talking the other day about when I was finishing my A-levels, deciding what to go to university for. I was in two minds over whether I actually wanted to study art or history. And I realized I'd sort of, um, I did, I, I went to art college, uh, but I realized I sort of ended up managing to find a way of making history part of my, my life as well. So as I was researching that, I realized I didn't want to tie myself down in, in too many ways at the beginning. So I, I didn't have a huge outline. I just kept on making notes and diving into lots of different books finding pieces and bits and pieces of information that I think 
oh, that could really work as a nice scene. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to, maybe that will uh, prompt a few ideas about dialogue. Uh, eventually, I just had this sort of a uh, couple of like documents of notes and that I just started pulling together. But yeah, in terms of how I decided what to include, what not to include, and, and, and how to structure it, I really wanted to make sure that I, I wasn't doing that kind of quite standard biopic. There were certain cliches that I wanted to avoid, or if I if I bought into any that I wanted to try and subvert them. I was really conscious of not making this quite a, a, a plain biopic structure. Have you seen um, Steve Jobs, the film? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, like, I'm <laughs> I'm not a fan of Steve Jobs, nor am I a fan <laughs> of that film, nor am I a fan of Aaron Sorkin in particular. But that okay. being said, I was worried for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but that, that being said what I thought was really an interesting choice was deciding you're not going to be able to tell a person's full history so you pick the themes the parts of their story you want to tell and you break it down into three key moments in their life and so that film has all of the conversations that are happening before three key presentations that he makes it really sounds riveting um, but <laughs> Uh, I thought that was a really interesting way to tackle that. So one of the early things I started doing, I realised that there were certain aspects of her life that would fit within a theme around particular moments. And those moments could easily or and often did work in the lead up to or post a big match. So I realised there were, there were so many important matches in her life, but I realised that there were four that I knew that I really wanted to focus on and that you couldn't really do without, in fact. And then it was about where you go from there and I sort of built it around that. Slowly but surely, I ended up having these like six chapters with preludes in between and little sort of uh, cold opens to each chapter where I could uh, introduce some of the themes before that, before it really gets going. And all of that would allow me to provide a bit of context. One of the things I realised was how complicated it is to tell a story about someone whose achievements need a lot of contextual setup as well. Mm. You need to be able to sort of place it in in, in terms of like, this is pre-open era, you've got amateurism, but people call it shamateurism. You need to explain what those two terms mean. You need to be able to explain what the relationship to the Riviera circuit, to, to what it is now, and, and uh, why did people spend time in the Riviera and what was all that about? And uh, you've got the suffragette movement happening right at the beginning. And um, I thought it was also important that I didn't try to limit or reduce her achievements to these sound bites that actually do a disservice to everyone else. So if you say, you know, like uh, that Suzanne was the first to issue the the corset and wear loose fitting courtwear, that's not true. Uh, Marguerite Bocquetti, I could be mispronouncing that, um, did that as a French player before Suzanne. You know, all of these sort of changes were evolutions not revolutions they all sort of happened over time and Suzanne was just sort of at that moment where it all sort of came together but I didn't want to sort of make uh, make it seem like she sort of invented all of these ideas I guess yeah Jonathan mentioned earlier like the that so much of Suzanne's 
celebrity and mystique is visual, right? Like it's such a spectacle. I was curious because there is probably not a ton of video footage of her actually playing. Um, I know there's a little bit that I saw on YouTube, but how did you render her playing style visually? Yeah, so I definitely looked up, um, there, there's some old sort of BFI footage, that, you know, where the like cafe um, archives and things. Uh, I think you can even find some of the uh, the matches of the century, the uh, Helen Mills match in 1925. There's bits and pieces, but yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly grainy. It's uh, from very far away a lot of the time, and it's got that sort of stuttering, um, those sort of frame rates, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the old frame rates. So it it's not ideal for when you're trying to sort of see how people move. A lot of that did actually come through in the prose I read, reading like Lacoste's descriptions of, of her on the court and things like that really helped. But for a lot of it, I realised if you try and draw accurately how people hit the ball when they were holding wooden rackets, some of the dynamism might not necessarily like come through. I was thinking of, oh God, again, I'm going to reference a film that I don't actually like, but <laughs> as Lerman's Gatsby, uh, <laughs> okay i've never seen it actually so <laughs> it's a very difficult novel to adapt i i'll say that <laughs> yes no that's true and i you know um there's so many decisions i really like about having sort of contemporary music that's what i wanted to say it's like you know he he has people dancing versions of 1920s um all the names of this escaping me right now Oh, like the Charleston? Thank you, the Charleston. Yeah, <laughs> versions of the Charleston, but with contemporary updates. And then it was, I think you've got Jay-Z doing some of the soundtrack. And the idea being that you can't quite convey and comprehend the level of sort of taboo breaking or the, the kind of social impact of the music as it was then now. And so trying to update it in a way to make it seem contemporary and how it might have appeared then, I think is a good idea. So I was trying to do that. I ended up using a lot of reference material, people now, modern players and the way they hit the ball because it's, you know, it's incredibly dynamic. It looks great. And I think it sort of gets across the idea of how it would have seemed for Suzanne to you know, at the time, a lot of the women's game then was uh, a lot of baseline rallies. And, you know, Suzanne was one, you know, one of the first to start, you know, coming to the net. She was playing against men in practice. She was hitting the ball harder. She was uh, mixing it up in different ways and then obviously leaping in the air, balletically. And so, yeah, one of the things was I was also doing a lot of visual research on ballet and dancing in general to capture some of the movement. And then I was also using a lot of modern players, people who had similar builds to the players then. So I, I ended up using Jabir for a bit of um, Elizabeth Ryan oh. uh, and Caroline Garcia a little bit for Suzanne at times. Um, There's this this video from Pathé, I think called How I Play Tennis, mm-hmm. where she's like demonstrating her strokes and on both the forehand drive and the backhand, she's kind of kicking her foot up as she as she hits. But yeah. her serve, like the service motion, is quite modern to me. Uh, you know, yeah. if there was maybe more drive from the knees and legs, it could look like a professional player today. 
Mm, yeah, no, it's really true. I I was also thinking about like how it would be just so interesting to get modern players to like re um, restring like wooden rackets with some of maybe the new technology and just see how modern players would would play with wooden rackets. Mm. I'd just be fascinated to see what it, how it would change their styles and you know when you've got such a small area for the sweet spot like how I'd just yeah. be really interested to see what it, what it would do. I feel like one of the big difficulties in talking about players of bygone eras, it's in part because there's always this impulse to compare them to who we know now, Mm. to compare to the tennis that we watch, to the greats of today. And so one of the interesting things for me in reading this book and also doing the research that we did with the Ted Tindling episode was learning about what I would call this pre-pre-open era because I I don't think it does it justice to call it the pre-open era. You know, I feel like this is a very distinct, unique period of time that needs its own explanation. Why was the French Riviera this hotbed, this place where everybody went? Why this one little location? And why was it this place that Suzanne didn't want to leave? This greatest player in the world wondering, like, why should I go to the U.S.? Mm. You know, like, (laughs) they come to me. Yeah, and when, when you've also got the idea of like going to America isn't an easy thing, you know, you're you're talking two weeks in a cruise like ocean liner, and um, from an early age, Suzanne had respiratory issues, like uh, I guess like Tinlin did as well. So the Riviera was like perfect for them, but I think any sort of long distance travel ended up sort of aggravating that, or at least she was very prone to illness. Her father never really wanted her to travel anyway. I, I think, you know, they sort of quite resentfully went to England for Wimbledon. And it's really interesting to think, you know, like, obviously, yeah, you can't compare, like, obviously now, like, uh, she'd be doing the entire tour and um, maybe she wouldn't, like, but I don't really understand the need for comparison. You know, whenever I'm, whenever I was doing research for Suzanne, and sort of going through like tennis message boards and things like you say there's there's still that sort of need to place it in a kind of goat debate sort of thing uh, which I just find really bizarre that it has to sort of go into people's sort of standums and whether (laughs) I think there are like long stands out there and people are going to hate my book I imagine but I guess I'm sort of less interested you know even with the kind of goat debate when it comes to the big three and 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 that sort of thing I understand the sort of marketing need for that but as tennis audiences or sports fans like to know the historical context of the match they're watching and I totally appreciate like the reasons for that I love watching tennis for the beauty of the sport and the tactics and you can have uh, these incredible matches without the goat debate having to come into it I guess is what I'm saying but yeah that's going off on a bit of a tangent I guess. So I'm sort of of two minds on this because Suzanne's definitely part of a continuum right like her legacy is felt Mm -hmm. in players that came after her and I don't know did you when you were writing this book were you thinking about legacy or were you thinking more about the more micro this was one person's life as a famous tennis player. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of both for me because I, I, when I found out more and more about Suzanne, I think the thing that really disappointed me was how little 
she's known just in, in a general like if you asked anyone you know casual sports fan to name a sports player from the 1920s that at best they'll probably come up with Babe Ruth and at the time she was she was bigger than him like she was a huge global superstar and arguably the first sport, sport superstar that existed she's you know arguably the sort of first modern celebrity of the 20th century I was going to say I mean she got Wimbledon to change its location because yeah. <laughs> the interest in her was so big that they had to find bigger grounds yeah no absolutely and Wimbledon had their centenary recently for for the, the move to Church Road and I mean I didn't watch all of the coverage and from the bits and pieces that I saw like her name wasn't mentioned and obviously you know it wouldn't have been like the sole reason they moved venue but it would have been a huge part of it and I found that really bizarre that she's not sort of almost like a household name I said I, it, it just seems like the amount of achievements the fact that she had this insane sort of 181 match win streak she um, dominated the sport for essentially eight to ten years and in terms of like that whole idea of the you know the best player of all time and all of that like I um, think of it in terms of like best player of that era and like Suzanne had this sort of decade where it just happens that her rise and fall also mirrors that of the, the jazz age and the roaring 20s itself and it has all of this socio-political context that sort of like makes all of the big and small moments of her life sort of feel bigger and more historically impactful. But then after that, you've got Helen Wills, who had a similar sort of eight-year run or thereabouts. You have these sort of dominating forces of the, the sport for around a decade each time, and, and this happens to be one of them. And I, I was just really surprised that we don't know that much about her, or at least I didn't. And uh, so part of it was in terms of when you say legacy, like it was about trying to redress the balance and try and, you know, hopefully get more people talking about her and thinking about her in that sense. But it was also about the fact that the, the person and not the sports star gets lost in that. So all of the chapters are uh, titled after all the different nicknames she was given in the press or by fans. But the book is called Suzanne. And the point there was that I was hoping to that the book got to the motivations of Suzanne herself and gave her a little bit more agency because the book sort of essentially starts with everyone wants a piece of her, but no one more so than her father. And everyone has these ideas of what she's going to do. And most of the people who have thoughts or opinions about her that get to talk about her are men. And throughout the course of the book and her life, I was trying to create an arc that didn't feel anti-historical, didn't feel like a lie, but was a sort of creative decision to slowly make her feel more in control of her life by the end. So those were the two sort of aspects of it, to place it in history, talk about legacy and sporting afterlife and what happens to you after you stop playing. Uh, but also to not forget that there's a person at the centre of it. In reading about her, I'm always left with this impression that she was somebody who was laughed at, ridiculed, and not taken seriously, despite mm -hmm. her contributions to the sport, despite her being a trailblazer, despite her impregnable records on court. 
that the, this was still the temperamental goddess, the one who was more maybe interested in the fashions, who was drinking on court. And maybe this is a function of men being the storytellers historically. Mm. But I, I, did you come across that at all? Was that something that yeah, you got I a think, sense of? I, I totally know what you mean. Like, I feel like she had a real kind of irreverent style in the answers she gave in, in press. She she had a lot of, like, sass. She uh, was often joking and being quite light about things. Yeah, you know, she went to those, uh, the Te Dansants and, uh, God, my French pronunciation needs to get a lot better. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, she enjoyed the hedonism and freedom of the, you know, the jazz age. I guess a lot of this is going to come down to our own, like what you bring to it. And and it, this could all be sort of projection on my part. But for me, a lot of that felt like a coping mechanism and a way for her to deal with fame early doors and the pressures that she was under the fact that you've both um, done your uh, Tinglim research will know, like, he talks often about she would have all of these, like, I think he describes it in terms of, like, peals of laughter with all of these vague uh, entourage who would sort of change week to week. And then he would see behind closed doors how she'd sort of have to recompose herself and her tired bags under her eyes would sort of come through again. And, you know, like, there was a real sense that it was all a big show that was definitely taking its toll on her. It's really interesting when we talk about comparisons to modern players, the things that I was picking out rather than sort of talking about historical records so much was the ways in which there are comparisons to, so obviously the father figure, the domineering father figure is, you know, a, a regular refrain throughout tennis history. You've got the ways in which fame at an early age can sort of affect your mental health and how you know I, I'm, I'm seeing sort of parallels to Osaka and uh, I'm seeing parallels with uh, even having um, her mum in the stands with a, a yipping uh, Belgian griffin uh, dog in the stands just made me think of Andreescu um, <laughs> <laughs> little things like that little details there were so many little bits and pieces that I found. I actually thought the closest analogue for her relationship with her father was, and maybe it's just because I've read open, but like Andre Agassi and how mm. that worked, that relationship was, because Agassi hated tennis, but also it was the only thing he was, like a lot of that sort of felt relevant as well. And all of these little things, I, I kept on noticing little parallels and I kept on trying to bring it out in terms of the way in which the press talk about people and how they will change where you are and whether you're in your ascendancy. And because obviously like she was also like placed at this moment when if you have a look at all the writing around the women's game before then, because obviously all the journalists were men, they were incredibly sniffy about the women's game and talked about it so disrespectfully and Suzanne basically made them have to talk about it with respect because people cared about it and went to see her. They couldn't, you know, the numbers didn't lie in that sense. Like they had to care about women playing sport and write about it with respect for the first time. Yeah, it's interesting, like what you pulled out, the tennis dad thing is 
1920, it probably wasn't a cliche, but it is now. <laughs> uh, you know, some things don't change. When you say um, interesting, I might say depressing. Dep well, dep that, yeah. yeah, depressing. In a hundred years, <laughs> so many things with women's tennis, how it's covered, the things that the women have to deal with that it hasn't changed mm -hmm. to the point where it's good for these players. Right. You know, like there have been improvements, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, a lot of these women are still dealing with the same shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And the yeah. other thing I thought about, like when reading Suzanne and, and listening to you talk is the immense sacrifice it takes to be a superstar, right? Of course, there's the typical sacrifice of any athlete, the, the commitment, but the parts of yourself that you lose and you shut down being as famous as someone like Suzanne, I think that has a lot of resonance for people like Serena or Steffi, uh, mm -hmm. Chrissy Everett. Yeah, absolutely. You have to sort of change your personality deal to deal with it. I feel like no one is really allowed to be them themselves. They have to sort of develop these sort of calluses on their personality almost mm. a, a, an entirely different skin particularly when you talk about like the ways in which a lot of this hasn't changed i was asked in like email interview about how I, I think i was asked how suzanne would feel about some of the recent adjustments that wimbledon has made to be less sexist <laughs> and i i guess they, you know they were, they were referring to the um the title was changing you know that yes <laughs> no longer it's a Mrs. John Lloyd or whatever. Yeah. Oh, God. That's that's um, really the best, the one that stands out for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was this by chance the interview with Wendy Brown for yes. Woman yeah, Right yeah. About Comics.com? See, I did my research. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. And yeah. So uh, as you will have seen, I, I just found, I think she would have been de depressed that it took a hundred years to get to that stage. Mm -hmm. And also, like we're still in the era of the, the, you know, the tennis whites and how that's not ideal for women when talking about menstruation and you know, all sorts of things that Wimbledon hadn't even approached or addressed and still needs to. I also think about the ways in which uh, the tennis press really reacted incredibly poorly when they were called out by Osaka. And I don't want to like re litigate all of that but I just remember thinking like yeah you know maybe she could have uh, worded it differently or addressed it in a different way or, or whatever I just thought that everyone within the tennis media yourselves excluded of course uh, <laughs> um, just sort of reacted like petulant children and uh, refused to do any learning after it it just um, I find it all yeah really sad <laughs> there was a a great bit of visual storytelling in Suzanne where you showed the whalebone corsets that mm. the women used to wear in that Edwardian period and the actual effect uh, and you hear these accounts of these like blood-stained garments that were actually because of how tight and awful the corsets were in that period seeing that picture was like oh oh my god <laughs> because of course Suzanne wearing more loose fitting clothes becomes like a sexualized you know scandalous thing when in fact there was a great deal of practicality to it right <laughs> right yeah no absolutely and also yeah just the fact that she was able to be 
so balletic on court and pull off these amazing moves that everyone was oohing and ahhing about and, you know, writing such florid prose about afterwards, she wouldn't have been able to do that with these sort of ankle length um, mm-hmm. dresses that they were having to wear beforehand. But yeah, I think, you know, I, I even have a sort of, she sort of says it in a scene, you know, like, they'll forgive all of this if I continue winning. And then, they'll, you know, they'll go back to calling me whatever names when I start losing. And I think that's all part of that, that idea of her constantly sort of almost feel, feeling like she's treading on glass, waiting for everything to sort of fall away from her. I think all of that contributes to it. Uh, not just the pressure from her father, it's uh, it's how the world will turn on her, or at least I think that's how, what she thought they would do. Well, we don't want to give away everything that's in the book and in the story, so we'll leave some for the listeners to go buy, Suzanne, <laughs> and find out for themselves. Now, uh, where can the listeners find Suzanne, and where can they buy your work, and how can they support you? Right, yeah, well, thank you. Um, uh, so my website is tomhumberstone.com and you can find me on social media at, at Tom Humberstone on Twitter and Instagram. That's convenient. Uh, yes. Yeah. I got in early. Um, <laughs> I've got like a link tree slash Tom Humberstone, which has a link to where you can pre-order the book from Avery Hill, the publisher. Um, but also one thing, if you're interested in this book and you think it sounds interesting, then it would really help if you ask your local bookshop to order it in. Any Anything like that would be, or certainly your local comic shop as well. You know, every hell of a relatively small publisher. And so any help in terms of letting your, your bookshops know that you're interested in, in reading it or even your library and those orders will really help. And what's the official release date? So it's coming out September the 1st in the UK and September 7th in the US, Canada. That's my birthday. Ah. (laughs) And in the middle of the US Open. So good timing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully so. Tom, thank you so much for coming on The Body Serve. You have been our illustrator for years. Uh Uh, We, (laughs) I mean, we owe you so much, but uh, we are so happy to celebrate this publication and kind of enjoy it with you and it's such a great occurrence that the product is great you know it would have really sucked to do all this promo and not really believe in the product (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah thank you so much guys like um i really appreciate it it's been really nice to chat to you properly and you as well finally finally thanks again to tom calling us from scotland a few weeks ago Love talking about the book. We, you know, we did this episode on Ted Tinling a few weeks ago and learned so much more about Suzanne. And it's just such an exciting time in tennis history. And it it's not so disconnected from now. Jonathan will be heading to New York shortly. We will be probably recording our US Open preview on Thursday night. Probably get it out on Friday. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a two-episode week. Yeah. It's going to be a very busy two weeks, obviously, because of the U.S. Open, but the two of us connecting via satellite. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll try and deliver uh, an acceptable audio for you on the next episode. We'll see what the hotel Wi-Fi is, but uh, stay tuned for our U.S. Open preview once the draw is out. And again, Tom's book, Suzanne, is out on September 7th. Your birthday. My birthday. I don't really need people to know that, but... You know, it's only three days away from Beyonce's, 
because a Virgo <laughs> will tell you that Beyonce is a Virgo. Mm-hmm. It's just how we are. It's, one it's of, what we it's do. It's one of your crowning achievements that you are born a couple days away from Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. A little bit younger, but still, I the kinship is there. To be fair, if I were born in that week of all the Aries greats, I would be talking oh, about yes. that nonstop. Yes. You're Mariah, Diana, Shaka, Aretha, and there are others too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the great Leos, Madonna and Michael. Leos love attention. That's you. I do not enjoy <laughs> no, you don't. that comparison. <laughs> I rebuke it. You just compared <laughs> me to I, the original I don't know her. The one who used to be popular back when i was in the eighth grade (laughs) that is funny shade but mariah was so wrong for that because it wasn't real (laughs) it wasn't true i'm born on the same day as bill clinton oh oh okay that's also not cute well you know we try so hard not to be political on this show (laughs) (laughs) just kidding um again suzanne is available september 7th pre-orders now it's a small publisher, so please contact your public library, your local bookseller, and ask that they stock it. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And it's exciting. Like, we don't get a lot of publications in the tennis world about historical events and figures. Thank you for listening to The Body Serve. I'm James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan at tennis underscore John. Find everything body serve related at linktree.com slash the body serve thank you to those who bought bucket hats in the last week hello and shout out to lauren who has been sending us pictures of her little dachshund rafa (laughs) on his body serve blanket letting everybody know that in his house he supports women's tennis (laughs) thanks for listening till next time thank you thank you very much